People don't ask the question often enough, what is food for or why is food important? Because when you read, especially liberal publications about the crises in, in America right now, the way the Republicans are standing against progress and da da da, da the, the crises you read about are climate change, COVID, income inequality, racism, gender discrimination, labor, agriculture, food in general does not make it onto that list of the top five or six crying issues we have in our country. But I strongly believe that it should be up there. That's the legendary food writer Mark Bittman. You probably know his writing about food and his recipes from his books and his column in the New York Times. The chances are you've cooked some of his recipes. Today, we're not talking with him about the pleasures of cooking or taste, but about the politics of food. That starts long before food gets anywhere near the kitchen or even the grocery store. We're talking about the land food's grown on, the places where livestock is raised, the types of food we choose to grow and export. How is the Western diet harming the planet and the people who grow and distribute our food? So Mark has a new book out. It's called Animal Vegetable Junk. And it's an ambitious history of the food we grow, starting basically at the beginning of agriculture, tracing the problems up to the present day. We got to talk with him about corn, capitalism, and chicken, and the near impossibility of eating an ethical diet. I'm Alex Perrine, a staff writer at The New Republic. And I'm Laura Marsh, the magazine's literary editor. This is The Politics of Everything. Well, hi, Mark. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to be here, Laura. Hi, Alex. So I've been reading your new book, which is about the way we eat and the problems with all of this. How hard is it to eat a basically healthy, ethical diet in the United States today? It's almost 100% a function of money and time. So if you have plenty of both, you can do a pretty good job of it. If you are short on one or the other, it's virtually impossible. But even if you have plenty of money and time, there are so many problems with the food system that even people who may be eating in as principled a fashion as they can, there's no purity here. It's a bad system. It's not working well. It's contributing to climate change. There are labor abuses everywhere, and that's not even getting into pesticides, the dietary consequences of eating junk food, and so on. So you can avoid some things with money and time, but you can't avoid a lot of the injustices. It feels like there are a lot of traps, even for people. So say you've got enough money and enough time, and you're being told plant-based milks are a really good substitute for dairy, because we all know that raising cattle is really bad for the environment. So I kind of have been thinking this. And then yesterday I saw that there was this kind of big discussion about the oat milk brand, Oatly. I don't know if you saw that. I did not. But, you know, I was just <laughs> going to, I would have raised that because that's the sort of currently most popular non-dairy milk. And I would have said, I don't know anything about their production facilities. I don't know anything about where they're sourcing their oats. I know nothing. So if you really have time and you're going to investigate every ingredient of every manufacturer, it's a full-time job. I drink probably 50 or 75% non-dairy milk, but I make it myself. I have money and time and I'm kind of a nut and I know how to cook. So I do that stuff. But I, I would say to people, if you want to do this, here's how. But there's no way that's a solution. There's no way the solution to the problems of the dairy industry is for everybody to make their own oat milk. That is not the answer. <laughs> 
Yeah. Apparently, the uh, the deal with the oatly milk is that it contains canola oil and more sugar than cow's milk. So it's kind of a you think you're doing the right thing, and then you actually don't have all this information about how it's made, unless you're literally making your own oat milk. I think it's really interesting because. I feel like there's a lot of advice aimed primarily at people who, as you say, have money and time. That's sort of about how to eat clean. But I appreciate the fact that you sort of brought up, like, you don't know where they're sourcing their materials. People are not getting that as advice in the same way they're getting advice about health and advice about sort of the purity of ingredients. They're not getting what was the labor situation, what's the sourcing, where did the ingredients come from? That's a lot harder to find. Labor is really the hidden factor, and you cannot produce cheap food without producing cheap labor. I think the people who are buying Oatly are not asking themselves, where's this stuff? You know, and we don't need to single out Oatly. We don't know if they're better or worse than anybody else. But, um, you know, anytime that anyone innovates anything in the trendy food category, even a legitimately trendy food category like non-dairy milk, which is an ancient product, non-dairy milk is, soy milk is an ancient product. Maybe oat milk is too. But anytime anyone innovates something, in that arena, they're pretty quickly bought by one of the big food companies because big food's incapable of real innovation, but they're not incapable of paying $25 million or $200 million for whatever. And then the efficiencies, real so-called efficiencies really begin. And maybe the formula changes, maybe the sourcing changes, maybe who knows what. And again, I don't know enough about Oatly to speak about it, but the first thing I would do even before wondering about their labor situation is read the label. Because if you make oat milk at home, you might put in a pinch of salt, you might put in a teaspoon of vanilla for a little flavor boost, but you're not going to use corn syrup or canola oil to make that. So, I mean, to, to try to find like perfection in food, you really have to grow it yourself. We can safely say that almost no one is doing that. Well, so maybe let's back up to the kind of broader subject of the book. How would you characterize the way that most Americans eat today? The most surprising statistic I came up with in the course of writing Animal Vegetable Junk was that 60% of the calories available to Americans today are in the form of ultra-processed food. So by extension, by logical extension, that means that 60% of the calories we eat are from ultra-processed food because that's what's out there. and We can only eat what exists. So some people don't eat 60% of their calories from ultra-processed food, but that's an average. So it means many people are eating more than 60%. That's not a choice, particularly. That's what's in the market. And what's in the market is driven by what's planted. And what's planted is driven by government policy, by profits. Profits are helped by government policy. The leading cause of death in the United States is chronic disease, and the leading driver of chronic disease is diet. And the leading driver of problems with diet are ultra-processed foods or junk foods. So what we grow is determining what we eat. That's determining how we live and die, basically. So I want to talk about how those ultra-processed foods affect what we grow. So if you're talking about a bag of potato chips, right, we're growing potatoes, presumably, but there's other stuff in there, right? Like there could be corn syrup, there could be palm oil, there could be additives. How big a part are those kind of non-ingredient ingredients of the agricultural system? Well, potato chips, even good potato chips have three ingredients, potatoes, oil, and salt. And the dominant source of calories is obviously the oil. When you drive through Iowa or places like that, you can't help but think about junk food, because that's where everything is going. It's all corn and soybeans, and corn and soybeans are the source of most of the calories in most junk foods. The soybeans 
and the corn both make oil. They both make proteins and sugars and carbohydrates, obviously, and different derivatives of those plants go into making most of the junk food that we see in the market. There are a lot of problems with the agricultural system, but very fundamental problem is the infrastructure, which is that even if you talk to well-intentioned farmers in Iowa, they will say, it's hard for me to grow anything other than corn and soybeans because that's what the market is buying. If I drive to the grain elevator, if someone comes and picks up my product, they want corn and soybeans, even if they're growing oats. Not that this is becoming the oat podcast. <laughs> we shouldn't pick on Oatly so much. <laughs> but even if they're growing oats, it's hard for farmers in corn and soybean country to sell oats because the whole infrastructure is bring us your corn and soybeans. So there's a bit of chicken and egg here. The system really began, I mean, you can pick any day you want, but it really intensified with industrialization of agriculture, which was late 19th, early 20th century, and the creation of huge amounts of surplus of commodity crops. And I think just to expand for a second, commodity crops is a term we've all heard all our lives, but it really means crops grown for selling, not for eating. They are commodities. They're cash crops. The idea is you grow what you grow best, and that's corn and soybeans in much of the United States, and you sell it. And then you use that money to buy whatever it is you need, which is grown elsewhere, where presumably that's grown best. And that's kind of a neoliberal, modern capitalist way of looking at things, but it's brought about huge problems in many aspects of food. So as Mark says, many of the problems in our food system date back to the industrialization of agriculture and the rise of the commodity crop, food grown not to be eaten by one community, but to be sold on the market. After the break, we'll be talking about Bill Clinton, Mexican corn, and soda. Before the break, we were talking about commodity crops. A lot of what's grown in the U.S. isn't for consumption in the U.S. It's grown to be exported. I really love the point about sort of what we eat being downstream of what we grow. I think your book does a really good job of explaining why we grow what we grow in the United States and sort of across the world. It was a sort of political and economic decision that you should grow what you're good at and then like only sell that, right? I think your explanation of how NAFTA affected corn and how Mexican farms worked was really interesting. Can you give like a sort of summary of that history? If you take that notion and, you know, without getting into the politics of it, I think it's kind of useful to think of Bill Clinton as kind of this country's father of neoliberalism, because we tend to blame all our current problems on <laughs> Republicans. And certainly Reagan was in there. But it's a bigger issue than that. The driver is really an economic philosophy. So if you apply that to NAFTA, the theory was, well, Mexican corn, which was subsidized by the federal government, the Mexican federal government, obviously, and was grown in relatively small quantities by small farmers who were doing it themselves, producing their own corn. For domestic consumption, right? For their own consumption, right. Corn that was exported from America to Mexico could be sold at roughly a third of the price, the corn that was grown in Mexico. Mm. So once you drop the barriers exporting industrially produced corn to Mexico, what you're effectively doing is putting those farmers, you're putting them out of business because you're basically putting corn on the market that costs a third what their corn costs. So those farmers were forced to sell their land or abandon their land and either 
moved to the cities where their labor, which was less expensive than uh, labor in the United States, could be used in new factories, or they flee north to where there's work for everybody. So basically, by doing this, you've destroyed the livelihood of many hundreds of thousands or millions of small farmers throughout Mexico. And this is happening worldwide. And, and you're doing it by industrially producing an inferior product that can sell for less. That's a really fascinating sort of end of that tale, because as you describe it, Mexican farming was small scale and sort of local before when our industrially produced produce, corn particularly, starts flooding the market. You suddenly have an entire group of people who, for example, need to cross the border to the United States to do work because their farm is no longer sustainable. Yeah. There's these industrial farms that need work on this side of the border. It creates this whole system. Well, there's at least two things to say about that. One is that the small corn farmers in Mexico certainly didn't produce corn syrup. And before yeah. NAFTA, Mexico was not the world's leading per capita consumer of soda, and now it is, or it has been in recent years. So that's one thing. But the other thing is, it's a good way to demonstrate that the decisions made about food and agriculture affect much more than what we eat and even our health. We're talking about, I mean, we're sitting here talking about migration. I don't think anyone thought when we started recording this podcast that we would be, you know, well, what's one of the topics covered in this podcast? Migration. But food does affect almost everything you can think of if you follow the trail back far enough. So the book is Animal, Vegetable, Junk, and junk is a big part of what's wrong. And we've talked about vegetable with corn, but animal is also a very big part of what's wrong. I was very intrigued by your chapter on chicken. Because, you know, people think of chicken as kind of the good meat. It's sort of a lean meat. It's not beef, which is causing methane gas to heat the planet. If you buy free range, people feel like that's a step in the right direction. And I was so fascinated by the way that you traced kind of rise of chicken to the center of the American diet. Chickens are easy to grow, easy to take care of. They weren't part of white European diets particularly, but they became popularized by formerly enslaved people and by immigrants from countries where chickens were popular. And so they started to enter the market. But the real changes were mostly post-war when antibiotics were invented, when the government invested money in developing what was called, I think, the chicken of the future, which was a chicken that grew two or three times as fast as its ancestors. And it is true that compared to cows, chickens contribute less to greenhouse gases, contribute less to environmental damage, are not as bad for you diet-wise. But globally, we're killing something like 55 billion chickens a year. It's a lot. There is environmental degradation associated with raising chickens in those numbers, and there's a lot of antibiotics being used. And then there's the moral issue, which when you're talking about raising literally billions of animals in horrible conditions where they're suffering from the day they're born until the day they die, which is mercifully short, we can only imagine how terrible that is. And without some transparency in the system, of which there's virtually none, and the, the producers would like to keep it that way, we don't really know what goes on inside of factory farms. Ten years ago, Someone like me, someone like you could visit a factory farm. Journalists are basically banned at this point. I think, I've been saying this a lot, and I honestly believe it. If people could see how their animals were raised, the consumption of meat, including chickens, would fall by 50% like tomorrow. 
It would just Mm -hmm. happen instantly because it's that horrible. What changed over the last 10 years? Is that a monopoly story? Is that a corporate power story? Why is it harder to know what's happening in an industrial farm now? It's both of those. The concentration of the industry, the people who actually are in charge of producing the chicken are effectively factory managers. I mean, they're not farmers. They're people who operate an automated barn that makes sure the chickens are fed and watered and eggs gathered or harvested for slaughter, but there's no care per se. The other thing is that there's been some legislation in some states that specifically Mm. sort of enhances trespassing laws. The the term that's often used is ag-gag laws that prevents not only regular citizens, but journalists as well from gaining access. And those are fairly easy to enforce if there's industry unity on We're not letting anybody in these barns. And then the problem with the deregulation and the defunding to some extent of EPA and a little bit FDA and USDA, EPA doesn't even know how many of these kinds of factory farms there are. And it certainly isn't enforcing existing clean water and air laws around them. So if there's local protests, if there's uh, local environmental enforcement, it's rare those are good things, I think. But for the most part, if you want to expand into an egg-laying barn or a chicken-raising barn, there's almost nothing that can stop you. After a short break, we'll be back to talk to Mark about how he turned from cooking as a subject to basically the political economy of food itself. Would you like to hear more from TNR? Every day, our writers and editors work to bring you the reporting and analysis you need to make sense of the world. But we can't do it without you. Please consider subscribing to The New Republic with our special offer at tnr.com slash special offer. That's tnr.com slash special offer. Before the break, we were talking about chicken and how the problems with that industry exemplify the problems in the food system more broadly. We were both curious how Mark, who's been writing about food and politics for a long time, came to study these problems. What sort of led you down this path? You've taken on this huge set of issues around the way food is produced. And I'm curious sort of how you were radicalized. Well, I was radicalized in 1965 by the Vietnam War. So being what we used to call political or being radical is not new to me. You know, I fell into food writing. I wanted to be a journalist. But I wound up writing about cooking mostly, travel, restaurants, and so on. I guess when I became secure enough in my career to really think things through was at a time, say 1995, 2000, when it also was becoming clear that American agriculture had gone in the wrong direction, becoming clear to me. Many people knew this before I did that we were developing more and more health problems as a result of our diet. And what was becoming clear was that there was a path for me to write about this. This is the sort of edited version of what I've learned in 20 years of thinking seriously about food and five years of intensely researching this stuff. And it is a radical vision. It's a radical vision because, as I said before, food is tied to everything. Any issue you want to talk about, practically, we can trace back to problems with the food system. And that includes you know, self-determination. That includes neocolonialism. That includes climate change. I mean, really, really big issues. It's driving a lot of those things, too. Like, you bring up COVID. It started popping up in all these rural places. And the problem was food production. The problem was, like, these people still had to go to work. 
you know, Laura and I could stay home, but in these farming places all across the country, people were still going to work in these crowded conditions. And that was like driving the spread of COVID. So even there, like all these things are downstream of, of our agriculture system. Right. And the other thing, since we're going here, let's go here. <laughs> we look at these individual problems and you can say that food is part of each of these individual big problems, COVID or climate change or income inequality, whatever. But of course, upstream from that is our economic system, is capitalism or neoliberalism or, or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I'm using food because food is what I know. I'm using food to try to call attention to the fact that we have a very flawed economic system that won't exist this way in 100 years, either through catastrophe or, or, or progressive innovation. It won't be this way 100 years from now that capitalism will have been transformed into something better or or worse. When we were sort of planning for this episode, our producer and Laura were making fun of me because I was like, you know, I was just reading this Marxist essay that made a lot of the same points that Mark Pittman was making in his book. And that actually like brings me to my question, which I, I think you sort of already answered. What do you want to happen as a result of this book? Who do you want to read this? And what do you want them to take away? Part of this is about self-determination for people in the world. Part of this is about who owns land and what they do with it. Part of it is about who controls wealth and what happens with it. And you can talk about those issues by starting to talk about food, as we just did. We started talking about oat milk, and here we are talking about destroying capitalism. So <laughs> that's, you know, that's a cool, I love that track. In a way, it's a sort of bait and switch thing, because I can start talking about cooking and get to capitalism too. So that is the upside of having come to this from the cooking world, is that I think many people think I'm benign, which I am benign, actually. <laughs> but I mean, many people think, oh, it's just Mark Pittman, that cooking guy or the minimalist or whatever. But there are serious things to talk about here, and I hope that I'm able to talk about them. I think a natural question for people who are reading the book and really engaging with the issues that you bring up is, what can I do? You know, to go back to your original listeners, which are the people with time and money, <laughs> there are many, many worthwhile organizations to contribute to who are frontline organizers. My favorite is called the HEAL Alliance. HEAL stands for Health environment, agriculture, labor. And it's an Oakland-based organization that is an alliance of alliances of people who are working in food. So that's one thing. Another thing is, I think, to support local local food movements. And that's everything from farmers markets to urban farming to better school food to CSAs. And then I don't want to get too far afield, but supporting the right to vote, supporting progressive legislation. These are important these are really important issues because it's not like we're all going to be eating a great diet while they're still underpaying workers, while there's still racism, while there's still greenhouse gas generation constantly, while there's no support for education, no support for public transportation. These things all have to be addressed simultaneously. Food is one part of the bigger puzzle of how do we build not just a better food system, but a better economic and political system. It's interesting because I think a lot of people tend to go to what can I do as a consumer? Like, is this something that could be solved through my choices about the things I buy? And it really sounds like you're saying, you know, the, the main thing you can do is actually engage with the political system, with activist groups, with politicians who are willing to do something about this. That's the kind of place to focus. Well, you know, Laura, it goes right back to where we started, 
you know, with our discussion of, of Oatly, <laughs> which this whole podcast has turned into an ad for. <laughs> if you have time and money, you can eat pretty well. But the people who have time and money in this country is, is maybe 10 or 20% of the population. I mean, you can argue about that. I don't care if you want to say 40%, great, but it's not 70%. We know that. So like so many issues, this does come down to a moral issue. Do you actually believe what this country supposedly stands for, which is that people are created equal, should have equal opportunities, should have equal rights? Because if you believe that, then you can't possibly believe. I, I think this is a, a quote from, or a paraphrase of something that Lula, the former and hopefully future president of Brazil has said, which is that you can't think that it's fair that there are people who can eat 10 times a day in the same neighborhood as people who worry about whether they can eat once every 10 days. Mm. That's just not right. We were ignorant of many, many things until the 20th or maybe even 21st century. Ignorance is not an excuse anymore. I don't think anybody can make a credible argument for there being a ruling class or for there being billionaires and poor people on the same planet. It won't wash. So I think we all need to think about that stuff through food or whatever other avenue we like and act on that. It does become a moral issue. It is a moral issue. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Well, it was fun and stimulating for me also. I'm going to go look up Oatly ingredients right now. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and try to perfect my oat milk recipe. Oh, man. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. It was fun. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. And we want to welcome our new audio engineer, Melissa Kaplan, who is joining us this episode. If you enjoy The Politics of Everything and want to help support the show, one thing you can do is share your favorite episode with a friend. Thanks for listening.